Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarland, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster. Christopher and Dave have invited along to push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Nicole Sullivan. Nicole is passionate about CSS, web standards, and scalable front-end architecture for sites with large numbers of pages and visitors. She speaks about performance at conferences around the world, most recently at Ajax Experience, Paris Web, and Web Directions North. She has enjoyed working on a large number of commercial sites, including Facebook, Yahoo, Club Med, Acor, Renault, and LaPoste. She writes on her blog, stubbornella.org, as well as other developer sites such as YDN, Opera, and YUI Blog. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave in their conversation with Nicole. Oh, thanks, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Hi, Christopher. Uh, it's going well. I'm finished my Dreamweaver book. It should be out in the bookstores by the time this podcast is heard by the world. And I'm just starting my CSS, a revision of my CSS book. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yes, back to the grind. Unfortunately, I had a short vacation, which was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you went to Comic-Con. Yes, I did. I nerded it up. Um, as much as I could, and uh, it was actually my third year at Comic Con, and so I was just—it's always a crazy time. So it's like, uh, just for people who don't know, like South by Southwest is like twenty-five thousand people. Uh, Comic Con is a hundred twenty-five thousand people. <laughs> oh my god! So uh, yeah, so wow, uh, and they're all dressed up like superheroes. Right? I wish they were, because then that would be awesome. Because then you're walking down the street, like you're already, you're already walking on the street, and they're always like Superman, like walking on the street and weird people, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, actually, this year, uh, in order to get to like the panels, like the people actually line up to go see TV stars and celebrities, which I I don't really get, but uh, they do that at like eight o'clock the night before to get into a panel. Like it's like one o'clock the next day, and um, I forget what panel it was, but I saw on the Twitter uh, with the hashtag for for Comic Con, people were camping out, and the line was already two miles long. Oh come on! Yeah, <laughs> so uh, I avoid those lines altogether. So, wow! Uh, but yeah, so so South by Southwest has some things to learn. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, but yeah, but uh, but anyway, but today we're talking about uh, CSS. You know, and you're you're be updating your book on CSS. Uh, I'm writing about CSS stuff like too. Uh, so really happy to have on our show, uh, Nicole Sullivan. Uh, Hi. Hey. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, we're glad you're here. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Uh, can you just tell us? Uh, a little bit about how you got into the web design industry and, and what brought you here and and uh, what got you started. You know, it's a really funny question because uh, I actually got invited in Australia um, to go and speak to a bunch of college students about uh, my path and, um, how, you know, how to get to where I am and what, what I did to get there or whatever. And um, the more I told the story of my path, the more I realized that the best way to get where I am is probably nothing like the path that I took <laughs> to get there. Um, I studied economics in college. Um, I, I basically took whatever classes I wanted. Um, and I, every semester, the course catalog would come out, and I looked at it like a buffet of choices, and I took whatever classes I was excited about. Um, and then finally realized I did have to graduate. And so <laughs> my dad sat me down and he was like, you do realize you're there to eventually have a, you know, a diploma. <laughs> and I, so I added up all my classes and figured out what they were closest to. And the degree I was closest to was a degree in economics. So I finished that one off. So, um, so what, if it didn't want me to interrupt, like what, no, type, no. Of, what type of subjects, uh, I find that really interesting because I feel like that'd be awesome. College was just like that, you know, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> it can be. Yeah. What, what type of courses did, did you gravitate towards? Uh, um, well, my high school was really, really terrible. Like, uh, you know, I graduated seventh in my class and I couldn't have told you even roughly when the two world wars were, um, really, really bad, uh, terrible education. Instead of learning history, they had us make up our own civilizations, uh, really not helpful. So I looked at college as a way to kind of get educated. And, um, so I took math and I took, um, chemistry and I took a ton of, um, logic and philosophy and um, some psychology and uh, kind of all across the board uh, from hard sciences to, I mean, I took a speech class actually and almost failed it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much whatever caught my eye. Um, but a lot of, a lot of sort of um, uh, economics and logic and, and that kind of thing. 
And so you graduated and then you... Oh, what <laughs> then what happened? <laughs> well, I graduated and I realized the jobs you can get with an under- undergrad degree in economics are actually really horrendous. Um, <laughs> I, be- I became a credit report writer for a very brief three months and uh, quit just before they were, I think, very close to firing me because I was terrible at it. Um, what, what is a credit report writer? Um, you have to call up companies and basically convince them to give you information about themselves um, in order to make their credit report more complete. Mm. Uh, the thing is, it's really not in their best interest to give you that information. So <laughs> I had this like huge moral dilemma around doing my job well. Um, so then I called, uh, I decided I wanted to be a carpenter actually instead. So I, I quit the credit report writing uh, career track and... Um, and called every ad in the newspaper and begged them to let me have a try and uh, got laughed at a bunch. And then eventually um, one of them said, well, you can come and work for me a week. And if you don't suck, maybe we'll keep you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I did that um, and actually became a carpenter for the next three years, building houses frame to finish. Um, awesome. Yeah. But that actually does play into the the web stuff quite a bit because I feel like when you've built real stuff, your tolerance for bugs is a bit lower and your attention <laughs> to detail is a little higher. Uh-huh, right. Yeah. So you um, did that for three years and then did you decide you wanted to do something else? And Well, I hurt my hands. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It turns out like when you weigh 100 and at that point 115 or something like that, lifting 200 pounds on a regular <laughs> basis is, uh, is kind of hard on your body. So... I um, got really bad. Um, I basically couldn't feel my hands, and the doctors, oh, yeah. you have to do something else. You're gonna you're gonna be hurt when you're older if you don't. Um, so at that point, I said, "I'll move to France. I'd like to speak a foreign language." <laughs> and, uh, and I couldn't because I was a carpenter. I couldn't get any kind of paperwork to be in France. Um, it, <laughs> there was just no case that applied to me. They wouldn't say it was impossible, uh-huh. but. Um, but it wasn't possible either. Like there was no uh-huh. case where you're like an unemployed carpenter and you get to move to another country with a visa. So right. yeah, so so basically your doctor told you you can't be a carpenter, but you're applying a visa to be a carpenter in France? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Okay. At least to just get there. Okay. Um, right. But so it wasn't possible, so I went as an illegal immigrant instead. <laughs> and, um ended up Reading, I was really bored. When you're an illegal immigrant, you can't um, you can't work, you can't go to school, you can't really do anything. It's a pretty terrible state to be in. So um, I ended up reading W three C specifications. To kind of <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Okay, back okay, up. So, back up here. <laughs> so 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 far, you're pretty much describing most front end developers' career. Pa- I mean, this is how we all got started, people. So. <laughs> so okay, so. You're a legal immigrant in France, <laughs> and you. how did you get from that to reading W3 specifications? Well, a lot of my friends were working for the W3C at the time, so it wasn't that much of a jump, but still the fact that I kind of thought that was an interesting way to pass time was, was sort of funny. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I just started reading them. I read XML schema, and I read CSS, and I was like, wow, the CSS one is kind of a lot simpler than the XML schema. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't get at all the fact that, uh, I, I thought that specs meant that's how it worked. Someone had written down how it worked, and mm-hmm. that was like, I don't know, 2002 or something like that. So the CSS spec absolutely did not work the way, the way it said it was supposed to. Uh, so it was kind of funny. Right. Yeah. And then finally, I kind of ended up, um, I sort of accidentally enrolled in engineering school because my French was pretty terrible. Um, I didn't, I thought I was taking like a little night class in Java. And then uh, I was like, wow, this is really, really hard. And it turned out <laughs> as my French improved, I realized I had actually enrolled in like a proper engineering school. <laughs> so I ended up with, you know, a random smattering of six or seven or 10 engineering classes, something like uh-huh. that. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I so, think people should definitely follow that exact yeah, path. This, yeah, this is not, I don't think anyone could follow that path. <laughs> it was ridiculous when I was speaking to the students in Sydney, their eyes just kept getting wider. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I just did whatever felt right at the time. And it kind of added up to <laughs> her career. But, yeah. Oh man, that'd be awesome. So like, like parents would come like, like so I'll, 
what you learn? Like, well, basically, if I just did anything I wanted to do, it'd be, everything turns out great. I'm like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> there you go. No, that's a good lesson. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the professional stuff you've talked about and written on. Um, one thing that I was really interested in is your talk uh, about our best practices are killing us. I think you did that at Webstock 2011, maybe before. I'm not sure. Um, but as web developers, we spend a lot of time on blogs or reading books or writing blogs and books about best practices and industry standards. We're a pretty reflective uh, group of people, um, always sort of saying, this is the way we should do it, or no, 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 this is the way we should do it. So this really, I thought was really interesting um, when you were talking about we're following these best practices and they're really hurting us. Uh, what did you mean by that in that talk? Um, well, you know, it was sort of an aha moment for me. Before that, I had realized that we were having some pretty bad outcomes with our CSS. You know, I had noticed that we were ending up with, you know, tons of duplication, um, basically not following a principle of dry, which is don't repeat yourself. We had basically the same kind of code repeated over and over again in our CSS. Um, I had also noticed that um, the CSS was pretty fragile. You know, people would touch something on one side of the site and it would break things on the other side of the site. And, um so I guess I, before that point, I had put together this list of like stuff just isn't working the way it really ideally should. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought that um, I hadn't yet connected it to our best practices and realized that if you followed the, the things that at that time were, were considered best practices, you would end up with those results every single time. Mm. Um, so, you know, overuse of the cascade rather than, rather than making things more modular. Uh, is a good example of of something that we thought was a best practice, but actually mm -hmm. doesn't work out at all. What are a few of the other myths that you talk about that people are following and it's actually hurting us? Oh, um, let's see. Uh, I think the biggest one is probably tying container to content. Um, so if you look back at early Alistapart examples of how to do tabs or uh, rounded corner boxes or things like that, they would, um, they would use the paragraph that happened to be inside of the box as one of the corners, for example. Um, and so people got really used to thinking of the, the random content that happened to be inside a rounded corner box as belonging to that box and, and being used as part of its structure. Um, but it actually creates a really um, fragile ecosystem where those components you're building can't be reused because you change even the most minor thing. For example, you want a list instead of a paragraph inside, right. and all of a sudden it has no top right rounded corner. Um, so that's that's another example. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, you know. We we come up with good techniques, and then those techniques also expire, right? But it's it's hard once they've gotten into the ethos of how we how we do our work to realize that it's time to expire a, a technique that served its purpose and needs to move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talk uh, about classitis and that was like, you know, I mean, even I'm not going to say who it was, but in a well-known book uh, that even just a, a recent edition, there's a section on classitis, the measles of markup is what it's called and talks mm -hmm. about, um, you know, how we shouldn't overuse classes and you sort of, dispel that you say that's you know that doesn't really apply um why why is that well um when you use uh, when you use an element selector in your css you're basically saying i will never use any other uh one of that element selector in this location um sometimes that can be okay like um tabs for example if they're targeted to the header uh, maybe you're not going to have a second list in those tabs but what if you do? What if randomly the design comes up with one of those tabs having a drop-down menu of secondary options, and that needs to be a list? All of a sudden, the list you used before is going to target both of those, and you're going to end up with a lot of style collisions that you have to deal with. Um, so I think it's better to use really specific classes that say uh, what you're doing with something. And it doesn't mean I always do. You know, if I can use a, for a child selector... Um, child combinator rather, then I'll definitely just use list item um, under under a list to style my list items. But um, yeah, I try to stay away from element selectors and, and ID selectors as well. It's, it's funny, I can understand that it feels a little weird to have a lot of classes, but, um, but it actually works out in practice a whole lot better. And so that sort of brings us to OOCSS, which you are famous, well, at least famous amongst us 
people uh, <laughs> for coining this term and developing the idea of object-oriented CSS. And um, maybe you could explain a little bit to our audience what it is. I mean, it sounds like it's sort of an evolution of these other topics we were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, object-oriented CSS sort of evolved out of a whole lot of fail. Um, I tried things, and I and I tried, like, my sort of, I don't know, I wish I could be otherwise, but I don't know that there is another way to be. My my <laughs> personality type is such that I, I try everything the wrong way first and, <laughs> and fail over and over again, and then finally I get down to this sort of nugget of things that fail less frequently, and I'm like, yeah. oh, here we go. <laughs> oh, All right. There you go. That's the start of my life right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess object-oriented CSS is the collection of techniques that I found um, fail the least frequently when, when building websites and web applications. So um, what problems does OOCSS try to solve? Um, basically, it tries to make it, well, it solves a bunch of problems, so that's a, that's a little bit hard to answer, but um, I'd say on the human side of things, it, it tries to make it a smoother ramp up from beginner to expert in CSS. Um, when we code CSS the old way, it's, you have to know a ton to even get started, you know, because uh, imagine you join a, a team and they've written, you know, I've had clients who've written 100,000 lines of CSS. Um, you, you have a lot of work to even understand what that CSS is doing. Like imagine just the layout mechanisms. So if you grep your style sheets for um, like float, height, width, and position, things like that, that are all about trying to lay stuff out. Um, mm-hmm. If you find you've got hundreds of those, that means that any, any new person who joins your team is going to have to discover hundreds of ways of, um, of laying out uh, different parts of your site. So the, the learning curve goes up really, really steeply. Um, the other thing I would say is that when we have to work with people of varying, um, varying skill levels, um, often we have to work with or you know, enjoy working with back-end engineers who don't really want to have anything to do with the CSS. And so um, object-oriented CSS makes it possible for them to build new pages, but without being... Um, uh, without needing to know, look under the covers and understand, you know, which clear fix method was used and and that kind of thing. They can just mm-hmm. um, combine objects more like building something out of Lego. So it's, uh, if I'm correct in understanding OOCSS, I mean, a lot of it, it comes back to this idea of, of classes. And basically, we can use classes to more clearly define what an element is. And it could be applied to any element, whether it's an H1 or paragraph or a list item. So OOCSS aims to kind of decouple CSS from HTML markup so that... Um, people who are creating sites, doing the markup, they can just say, well, this needs to have rounded corners so I can put a class on it rather than relying on or communicating with a designer to say, okay, this is a list item inside of a, of a div with a certain ID. Please create a style to give me those rounded corners. Is that right? Kind of. Um, it, it's almost right. Um, it's not decoupled from the HTML, though. Um, mm-hmm. It's actually just um, coupled with a very small chunk of HTML. So you have a small chunk of CSS that does, you know, usually one thing and does it well. And mm-hmm. then you have a small chunk of HTML that that CSS expects. And um, then you can put other objects inside of it. So if you have a rounded corner box, it doesn't say anything about what should be in it. Um, it doesn't say what headers should be on it. It doesn't say what footer should be on it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say if it should contain paragraphs or if it should contain a media block or even another rounded corner box of a different mm-hmm. style. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically coupling coupling the CSS to a very small piece of HTML rather than sort of randomly willy nilly coupling it to the entire page and hoping things work out. <laughs> right. So so, so it kind of like avoids a whole cascade approach. It just like says like this like like to your example of a rounded box is like I'm only defining this rounded box. I'm not gonna go any further inside the rounded box with styles and rules inside of it. Is that right? Is that Kind of, yeah. You um, you basically use you use the cascade for nodes of the same object. So if it's a rounded corner box, we're talking about um, you use the cascade for everything that's part of that rounded corner box. So that includes the um, the actual corner elements if you have them. If you're trying to do really old IE support or something like that, um, because 
those corner elements are never going to be off on their own. You're not just going to have a top right rounded corner floating off by itself somewhere. It, it belongs to the rounded corner box. Right. So that's, that's a case where you would absolutely use the cascade. Right. Um, where you wouldn't use the cascade is when you pass through the, to the content area of one of these container elements. Right. Like, so like, like a, a font uh, size or family, you wouldn't like bother to put that into this this uh, like hypothetical thing, like rounded box. Just say, like, we're just defining the box. We're not going to set any rules for type in this instance yep. and have it pass it down. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. The one exception to that is if you have a class which changes background color, mm-hmm. I'll often also have it change the font colors inside if there's going to be a contrast issue. Um, so that's, you know, for every rule, there are exceptions in places that you'll, that you'll break the way that it typically works, and, and that's one for, for font stuff. Okay. But I wouldn't have it change font sizes. Um, ideally, you want each, each little piece of um, functionality that you make, each little object, to behave the way it's expected to behave no matter where you put it. Yeah, so for instance, like you have like a, a, a form warning, like a, a warning box or something like that, you would definitely want to change the, the colors of the text inside of it if it's going to have like a red background inside of it, right? Yeah, it depends. You know, if you've got a, you know, if you've got like a deep red background and, and the, the contrast isn't going to be enough for the normal body font, then absolutely. It's, it's sort of a trade-off because if, imagine you had a light pink background on your, on your warning. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's one of those gray areas where you're not sure whether, I'm not sure whether I should tie that directly to uh, my font color or not. Um, usually what I decide is that it can be useful enough to have a way of creating, um, say, you know, dark red type or something like that, that I'll create it separately and then just combine them together um, as a sort of example of how you can use the objects together. So maybe you could we could talk about a concrete example of um, of how someone would mark up some HTML and some CSS. Maybe using like one of the things that uh, you first wrote about um, in or that I first read about in connection with OOCSS is the media object that you kind of mm-hmm. developed as a way of of styling media elements. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the HTML is like, including like what classes get applied and what the CSS would be like. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the media block is a really simple element that tries to just solve uh, one problem, really. And it's basically an image to the left and some content that describes it to the right. Um, the thing that is important about the media block is that it's really agnostic about whatever content happens to describe it. So um it can be used really broadly. Like it can be used for a little icon with just a link text next to it, or it can be used for a video with a full-on description of the video next to it. Um, it's uh, sort of, I guess, famous for having been used for the Facebook profile mm-hmm. uh, photos, a right. little profile image to the left, and then whatever you said to the right. Um, so that's that's what the media block is um, in terms of its HTML. It's it's pretty simple actually. It's just a a wrapper div which has the class uh, media on it. And then inside that there is uh, an image or a link around an image. It can be either. And that would be, um, I have a class um, IMG because I don't want to target, like if someone happens to put an image inside the um, the body of the media block, I don't want to target that image too. So I add a little class um, that I can then move between the link or the image depending which one is the is the um, child of that media block. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's got a body. And, and my class um, body is basically a signal that no, no style should pass through this area. Um, and so that, that's on a, a node, which is a sibling of the, of the image itself. Um, does that make sense? It's a little hard to describe HTML with voice only. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. I. I. I yeah. I get. It. I mean, we'll, we could talk a little bit more because I think for a lot of people, this is sort of uh, new. Um, and I mean, even though it's, you've been talking about it and it's been around for a while, I, I think it can be difficult for people to sometimes wrap their heads around around this. Um, I mean, I. I draw kind of a, a corollary with stuff that's happening kind of in like JavaScript UI frameworks like um, jQuery UI, for example, they, uh, if you look at the code that it generates, the widgets are, you know, chunks of HTML, but basically they're loaded with classes and the classes then are in the style sheet, which, which, um, you know, styles that particular widget, whether it's like a, you know, calendar widget or whatever. 
and they do an interesting thing, and I think this is part of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about OOCSS, is they'll have like these kind of uh, simpler classes that represent kind of base objects that are shared um, across like the widget library. So for example, like if you were looking at a calendar widget or the date picker widget in jQuery UI, you would have an element that would have like the class UI widget, UI dash widget dash header. And that would be something for all headers across the entire widget library of jQuery UI. But on that same element, because it's the date picker, there's an additional class added. So you get multiple classes on one element. This one would be UI dash date picker dash header, which provides a more specific styling for that particular widget. Um, is that that's kind of like an OCSS concept, right? Or or similar? Yeah, it can be. Um, so with with jQuery UI, um, they they'll break down their classes a little bit more than I would be willing to. Um, so we have a little bit of a, a disagreement about um, about how to break down the classes. That example that you're talking about is great. Like you abstract out the header. I do that too. I have a class head HD, and then you know I'll have a bunch of other classes that I use to um, then extend that and get different looks and feels. So maybe you know blue gradient on one header, a gray gradient on another, a line under it on another, and those will all be separate classes. Um, the thing that jQuery UI, I kind of think of jQuery UI as being uh, you know, obviously metaphorically, but closer to functional programming um, because they abstract out um, classes like, you know, top border rounded and, mm -hmm. um, you know, clear fix and things like that that I try not to abstract out. Um, the reason being that I try really hard to have objects that you don't need to understand what's happening with them. Um, so you don't have to... Basically, my, my use case is an engineer that doesn't want to understand the CSS but needs to be able to build out new pages and templates um, uh, in the middle layer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we give them classes that are too granular like that, they can end up um, needing actually more CSS knowledge than they would if you gave them um, completed things that actually do something. Right. So if you're working on a project um, with OOCSS, how do you communicate this stuff with... Uh, the back-end engineers. So do you have like a style guide that explains this stuff to them? or I do, yeah. I have a style guide um, that I um, that I deliver as a part of every project. So um, a typical project starts off with an analysis of their site, since I'm usually sort of redoing rather than getting to start from uh, brand new mock-ups. Uh, that would be fun sometimes to get to do that, but that's <laughs> not right. my typical client profile. Um, so usually we start by analyzing their um, their existing site and breaking it down almost into a, a sort of guide to existing styles as opposed to a style guide, which is more, um, uh, uh, I don't know, hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and then we build out actually a library that matches that that uh, style guide. And so for each object that we find in their site, we build out uh, the same thing, but built in a, in a more modular object-oriented way. Um, so they might get um, background objects, they might get contour objects, they might um, have lists of links and headings and, and, um, and you know, all kinds of media blocks and grids, obviously. So they get this sort of um, living library of all the objects that they have available to them on the page. And for each of them, it says um, it has a rendered example of it. It has a, uh, a snippet of HTML. So that's exactly what you need to generate in the page in order to have that look and feel. Mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then after that, you have, uh, you have any descriptors. So if there are classes that you can append to this particular object in order to get a different look and feel, um, those will also be listed. So that's what I deliver. Cool. So, um, I mean, sometimes it feels like, like with OCSS, it, it sounds like it kind of, well, maybe I'm wrong, but it, it feels like it works best if you've already got a complete site and then you're sort of reverse engineering it to make it more optimal. Um, does it, do you think it's the same process if you've got a brand new site and you've got, you know, say five pages of mockups and that's sort of all you've sort of envisioned at this point? Um, can you create CSS that is um, flexible enough that you can grow it out from there without having to re-engineer later? 
Yeah, you absolutely can. Um, it's, uh, it's actually relatively easy. I mean, I would never start with just one mock-up or two right. because I feel like that's a little too soon. If I just had one or two mock-ups, I'd probably just build the template and then wait mm -hmm. for a little bit more content before I built um, out the object library. Right. Um, that said, a lot of the objects are the same. Like if you if you look at websites and web apps, they're, you know, if you look for a media block, you're going to see it on every single site, basically on the entire web. Um, so you can start off with things like the media block, customizing it for your particular site, um, things you know that are going to be necessary, grids, um, that kind of thing, and then add to it as you go. Um, usually I try, though, to start with the simplest objects because the tendency, if you if you're building complex objects first is not to realize that complex objects are often composed of, of simpler pieces um, put together. Mm -hmm. So that, that's right. the one rule I try to follow is kind of start with the simplest stuff, the headings, the links, the lists. Um, and then when you've got that done, uh, start building out more complex stuff. Right, right. So out of all this philosophy around object-oriented CSS, there's actually a project, a GitHub project that you are, uh, that you started, I guess. And, what what's the project about? Um, well, so the project started because um, I was talking to a Google engineer, um, and he told me that it was impossible to build the Gmail layout, and that it would take him three weeks, and that um, CSS was broken uh, because <laughs> it should, it shouldn't take him him three weeks to build out the Gmail layout. Um, and I told him that that was utter crap and that <laughs> I could show him some CSS where he'd be able to build out the Gmail layout in two hours, including figuring out how the, the new CSS that he'd never seen before worked. And he said, that's impossible. And because <laughs> I'm kind of on the stubborn side, I was like, okay, well, let me show you then. And um, created an open source project to basically provide little snippets and objects um, as example implementations of the, the kind of patterns that OOCSS is interested in. And so is, is this uh, like a framework type of thing, like, you know, uh, HTML5 boilerplate, or how is that different? Um, it's kind of a framework. Um, it's more than a framework. It's meant to be an example because uh, ideally what I want is people building out their own objects and to realize the little pieces that their site is made of. And um, so maybe they come to OOCSS and they borrow the media object and the grids, but they don't have to take the whole thing. You know, it's not a, it's not a framework where you're expected to like take everything or nothing. Um, you can pick and choose pieces and maybe decide you want, um, I don't know, modules and and uh, media block from mine and maybe you want Twitter bootstrap grids and maybe you want blueprints, um, topography or whatever. And um, that's meant to be totally fine, at least on the OOCSS side. So it's kind of like a pattern library, sounds like. So you'll have patterns for uh, tabs and uh, I'm looking at the site here, you're going to do talk bubbles and content objects. Uh, right now you've got Patterns for modules, templates, and grids. Mm -hmm. And and a lot more than that. There's unfortunately my documentation never quite keeps up with what I <laughs> put it. It's much more fun to code right. stuff than it is to sure. document it. Um, yeah, there are, there are a bunch of things in there. So there are tables that that the, the abstracted objects. What they usually do is they handle cross browser compatibility issues and. Um, they they kind of handle the heavy lifting of making whatever it is that's being made. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's easy to add your own skins on the top of that because you won't have to worry about whether margins are being trapped in IE or, you know, whatever else. Mm -hmm, right. that, that's kind of built into the base object. Right. I mean, um, during research, like, I, I, you, you made a quote, and I, you know, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I loved it so much. It's like, uh, in talking about um, just building web development and all that, you said, like, it's not a bug, it's just how different browsers render things differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that because it's, it's such a, it's like uh, people think that there's bugs in browsers, but you know, sometimes they come across it. It's just, that's just the way, you know, like the Firefox works, and that's the way IE works, and so that. So it's just, and um, so, you so you. Your default styles well, then yeah. you, can't, you can't expect them to behave in the same way. Right. And so, um, and so, I, is, does o, does this OOC CSS project does that sort of a kind of replace reset and normalize a little bit, or does it work oh, in no. tandem with them, or or does? 
Yeah, not at all. It's not meant to handle the the reset and normalize problem. Uh, right now, it uses reset from YUI, but we're actually going to move over to normalize in the next version. Um, so that's the that's the current plan. Um, I think a, a reset's absolutely essential. It it just makes everything so much easier. I know that when I started using resets, all of a sudden my debug time for IE mm-hmm. went down to almost nothing, and yeah. and that felt great. <laughs> yeah. So so would you? I mean, because we, we talked to Eric Meyer and we talked about uh, reset, his reset, and, and normalize. And so, uh, and so just for the people who, do, who didn't yeah, listen to it, but the reset basically just like uh, just nukes the whole entire uh, default styles from a browser pretty much and just says, just sets everything to zero in terms of margin, padding, font sizes, uh, even font weights for headings, uh, depending on which reset you go with. Um, but then normalize comes in and says, like, hey, that's a little bit too extreme. Well, we'll give you, well, like, we'll start the resets, but then we'll, we'll come in and, and kind of like uh, do like a kind of like a, a uh, low relief a little bit, if you will, and actually give you some, some, some styles for the heading, uh, colors, and, you know, for block quotes and all that stuff like that. And so, um, and so it looks like, so, so you're saying like there's go with normalized CSS, which, which gives you that kind of like a little bit more of a uh, little style design in order. In addition to uh, working with that, you're going to be adding that into OCSS future. Is, is it? Do you feel like that's like a lot better approach than, than people adding their own type of styles? Um, well, I think that I think that whatever whatever piece you're using, you need to understand what's happening under the covers and, and potentially modify it. Um, yeah. So the YUI reset, um, particularly like it because it's, you know, it's super solid. It's been tested on a, you know, a lot of big web pages across, across the web. Um, they, a long time ago, actually had both the reset style sheet and they had a base style sheet, which um, added styles back that they had taken away. Um, so I, I think that that's a good thing. And I, I had always done that approach, but rather than taking their um, style sheet that added the styles back, I just built my own style sheet that added the styles back. <laughs> um, but I like normalize and I'm terrible at topography, so I'm ha- <laughs> happy to kind of um, borrow some of that back from them. Okay. So is that why you want to move to normalize? Is because you like the idea of instead of resetting to zero, we just create a consistent yet pleasant, you know, cross-browser uh, presentation? Yeah, I mean, I, I fully intend to modify Normalize for mm-hmm. OOCSS, though, you know, right. to make it, make it work for us, because the, the danger of just taking a, um, any kind of framework wholesale is that you end up with a product that looks exactly like that framework. Right, <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and you don't have a lot of, you don't have a lot of um, distinction in, in what right. you've made. So. Talking to you, Twitter bootstrap. <laughs> I just think you know variety in design is good. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, in some ways, um, you know, some of the the stuff about uh, OOCSS pat uh, like these modules, the library that you're constructing, there's some similarity. Um, I don't think in terms of what they're trying to achieve, but uh, with how they're implemented with microformats, because microformats has kind of a similar idea of creating these sort of modules that are for particular um, purposes, adding classes to them to identify them. Um, did that inform you at all at all microformats or um, I did look at microformats and tried to include them, but um, because my objects are about how they display, the patterns mm-hmm. I find are about you know what the object looks like. Um, microformats tends to be really heavy into what the content is, obviously. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, they don't necessarily, um, they, they can work together really nicely, but they're, they're sort of solving two different problems. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, I micro, to, microformats ahead. are for, you know, for computers basically to ingest the content and yours is more for making it easier for people to uh, style their sites consistently and, eff- and eff- efficiently, it seems like. Yeah, so I tried, after playing with microformats for a while, I found the best approach was just not to style microformats um, mm-hmm. classes. Just leave them in there for the computer. That, yeah. you know, leave them for the crawler or whatever, however they're going to be used. But, um, but it mostly makes sense to not style them. Mm-hmm. So, so would, if you had to put microformats into a particular um, design that you're working on, would you then layer your own 
uh, modules on top of that in your own CSS? Like add that to the microformat HTML? Most likely. What I would do is, um, is actually look at the microformats as a content object. So mm-hmm. as a, a leaf node, something you're not going to add anything else inside of. It's just a, it's an end node. Mm-hmm. And then I would put those into OOCSS objects as required to, uh, to get the proper layout. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Well, one thing with the OCSS, I mean, I think, you know, like if this came around five years ago, it, it wouldn't have worked or, or six years ago or seven years ago. I mean, I think partly the way we build websites has changed so much that OOCSS is now uh, kind of necessary. Um, you know, now, I mean, I, I suppose people still build static websites and they just build 100 pages of HTML and post it up. But now we, it's totally you know, fun, too, by the way, to let you know. <laughs> It's, to, it's totally you like that. You like that. Oh yeah, it's just great, man. <laughs> this old school way, just doing it. Oh man. <laughs> uh, but you know, now we have content management systems that you know, so it's it's not as difficult to you know inject classes into our HTML because basically we're building templates and we can define that up front, and then the content gets injected you know via database. Um, in some cases, though, like say uh, you build a site in WordPress for a client, you you. Uh, write all the CSS you you know for that um, but the uh, what the client is using is you know they're using the HTML markup widget inside of the administrative panel in WordPress and um, they're not going to be adding classes to the content that they are injecting so in some cases it seems like we you will need to still rely a little bit on like descendant selectors on uh, you know the the DOM on particular HTML elements because that's what the client is putting in for that content when they're making a post, for example. Is that true, or have you seen ways to work around that? Um, yeah. Well, so first of all, I think we need to look at those things as more flexible than they might initially seem like they are. Um, so you know, I think a lot of times when we work with a backend engineer and we make a request for the HTML to be a bit different than it is, whether it's so it can be more object-oriented or more accessible or more whatever, we get back a, no, you know, that's how it, that's that HTML that's outputted, you can't change it. Um, That's not true, it turns out. (laughs) It turns out HTML can be changed, tools can be made to output something that fits more like what you want. that said, I think uh, I think sometimes we have a little bit of a battle in terms of um, getting the respect in those technical decisions as front end engineers that um, that maybe we deserve at this point. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so um, yeah, I would I would encourage people to look at that as changeable and to dig into it and figure out you know what would it take to change the little uh, module that outputs this HTML to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there will be cases where you can't or choose not to do that. Like, you know, maybe you're pulling in a Twitter widget or something like that. And um, that widget comes not only with its own uh, chunk of HTML, but with a bunch of CSS you're going to have to overwrite so that it doesn't look like something uh, outlandish on your site. Um, right. In that case, I think it's okay to um, decide that that is one module that is sort of uh, separate from the rest and will be mm-hmm. will be treated differently and just... Put a class wrapper around the whole thing, and then mm-hmm. use that class for all those styles so that they don't pollute your your normal um, clean modular styles. Right, right, yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is honestly styling a styling a WordPress blog or a sort of brochureware type of site. I mean, you can do that in a weekend, right? So mm-hmm. it it doesn't actually. Um, it doesn't actually matter that much if you do it perfectly or if you you know. Well, I shouldn't say that. Don't don't yeah. take shortcuts because it's fun to learn. But like, if if you have to take a shortcut, then you know the the time to fix it is going to be another weekend. So that's not terrible. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But if you you know if you're working on a you know a company website where that site is going to be around for a long time, then mm-hmm. the cost of making the easy choice now can actually add up a lot over time. For people who are like new to OOCSS and are are just sort of trying to get up. To speed with it, I mean, it, it sounds like it, it came out of your experience on really large sites. Lots of people working on it, lots of content, constant updates. 
and they're running into a lot of problems maintaining that, you know, Facebook, for example. And that for someone who's just building a, you know, 10 page website for a small business that is not going to be updated that quickly, OOCSS might be overkill for them or it might be too much work for them unless they're into doing it. Um, that the use case for OOCSS initially was really large sites, lots of people, lots of updates. Yeah, I'd say that, but then I'd also say like I haven't done a very good OOCSS implementation on my own blog, and I regret it all the time. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like you know, I want to make these simple changes, and I'm like, oh my right. god, I can only get that paragraph <laughs> style if I'm in the whatever, you know, and right, and right. and so I think if you're going to do a blog, um, at least makes sense to do everything that goes into a blog post in an OOCSS uh-huh. kind of way, and then right. do the template and everything else the traditional way. <laughs> That might be that might be a good compromise. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about tools. You, um, uh, I don't know a lot about it. I just learned about it. But CSS Lint, which is CSSLint.net, um, maybe you could explain what it is and who developed it and how it works. Um, so Nicholas Zakis and I developed it together. Um, I sort of got the idea that um, we should be able to test things in a more automated way around our CSS. Um, I saw all kinds of um, issues that were, you know, things that you didn't necessarily have to um, struggle with as much as we do and certainly didn't have to get out into production code. So, um, for example, box model bugs. You know, if you, if you combine um, width or height with, with padding or borders on the same side, uh, you're going to end up with differences in the box model across different browsers. And um, that's something that's relatively avoidable, but a lot of people don't know about it because it is an older problem. Um, so we started thinking like, wait, we can test for this automatically. We just have to look for a, you know, a selector that contains both width and height on the same side, and we can actually automatically generate an error so that people know before they push to the production that it's going to break in IE6 or whatever. So how do you use it? Um, well, so CSS in or... Yeah, there are a bunch of options. If you go to CSSLint.net, um, you can paste your CSS into a box, and we will. Um, we actually run it all on the client side, so it's running in your own browser. We're not looking at your CSS, so, so you can put your super secret new project CSS in there, and there's no issue. Um, and basically, we run through the CSS, and we do a bunch of checks. And um, you can turn on or off any of those checks that you that you want to. So. Um, if there are some you agree with, leave them on. If there's some you don't, you can turn them off. Um, and then we give you a list of errors we found in the CSS or, or warnings as well. So um, the errors are more serious. They tend to be things that were bad enough that the parser sort of choked and couldn't figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the warnings tend to be things you should look at and consider correcting before pushing to production. Um, so that's that's how it works for, um, you know, in the simple end of things, but on the more um, complex end of things, if you want to make it part of your push process or part of your commit process, um, there is, uh, it also can run on Node and the command line on Rhino and on CLI. So mm-hmm. um, lots of options uh, for ways to, to run it in a more automated way as a part of the development cycle. Cool. Maybe we could talk just, a, I mean, I'm looking at the errors and warnings here, and maybe we could talk about a few of them and, and why you uh, decided that those were important to, to notify people of. Um, for example, there's a disallow too many floats. What's that? What are you checking? How many are too many floats and why is that important? Um, so when you have a lot of floats, it means that you probably are lacking a grid and layout system. So it means that uh, you're probably... Uh, for each new mock-up that you get and each new module that you add to the site, you're laying it out all over again as if you had written no CSS before. Uh Um, That's what I was talking about before, where it's the kind of choice that may seem faster in the moment, but um, when you have to add people to your team and they have to figure out how this particular module lays itself out as compared to the other 500 that you've already written, um, it can actually take a bunch of time. So... um, we actually go in and, and check the number of floats and check if it's above the number you'd need if you had a good grid and template system. So how many are too many? I can't remember how many. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking on the, the wiki here and I can't find out how many are often, too many. It, often so, we start with like 10 or 100 oh, and kind of run oh, it. Oh, I see. Down. Here it is. More than 10 times. Yeah. 
So imagine you had imagine you had a grid system in place, so you could do any kind of like thirds layout, fifths layout, um, and those were all nestable and stackable. Mm-hmm. And then imagine you had a media block already set. Um, and then imagine you had a template that allowed you to do all your columns and your header and your footer of your page. Um, all of a sudden, you wouldn't actually need Float very much. Um, mm-hmm. You'd kind of have it have it all made for you. Cool. This is great. I love this. Well, I have a question uh, about one of the rules is that you check for, or one of the errors you check for, is disallow negative text indent. Is, is there is a reason why you want to check for that, or? or? Yeah. Um, so that that particular um, that particular rule came about because on sites that need to support RTL languages, so Arabic, right. um, often our our negative text indent techniques break down. Mm-hmm. So we'd love to hide accessible text using a negative text indent so that right. we can we can have uh, extra text on the page for screen readers that everyone else doesn't see. Um, but if you do that for Arabic languages, it will completely break the layout of your page. Um, so that's why that rule uh, hmm. is in there. And that's one of the rules where if you know you're never going to support Arabic, mm-hmm. you could consider turning that rule off. Okay. Cool. So what, what's the alternative if you are if you do have to support an RTL language? What do you use instead of negative text indent for? Um, people have used small font sizes. They've used mm-hmm. um, uh, position absolute, and as long as you aren't using any position relative nearby, um, they've used some uh, overflow hidden with negative margins. But I think there's one that emerged recently as like the sort of Uber winner, um, right. but I, I can't remember. Do you guys remember what the technique was? I, you know, I, I remember people going crazy for it, but I forget who developed it and what it is. <laughs> I think it was Overflow. It was like, um, it was, um, one second. <laughs> one second. I, got this, I got this Google thing in front of me. Um, yeah, it was actually uh, text indent 100%. Would that, would that still solve the problem? Oh, interesting. Huh. And, then, and then you do a, a white space no wrap with overflow hidden, huh? Was that? Uh, but that wow. was, would that still solve the problem, or would that just still recreate the uh, Arabic language problem, though? So. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to test it with the Arabic language problem because um, with Arabic, it was a negative text indent that I know caused it, and that's the only thing we test for because mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't even know this other technique existed. I don't think I've heard of that one before. Uh, it's from uh, Scott Kellum. So, um, oh right, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. so. Send me a URL. (laughs) Will do. So disallow box sizing. Is that just because IE seven doesn't support it, or? Um, Yeah. Um, So you know, keep in mind that each of the rules has browsers that it applies to and browsers that Mm -hmm. it doesn't. So if you don't need to support IE seven, then that rule wouldn't be one that you that you care about. But if you do, then it's something that could definitely make some weird layout stuff for you. but yeah, more and more of my clients are saying no more IE 6 and 7, so that's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for those of you listening, I mean, this is an awesome site, CSS Lint. It's a great way to check your uh, CSS to make sure that it's going to work on different browsers. But more importantly, I think that you've got this wiki component where you someone can learn about all these different rules and why you chose to implement them and what turning them on or off does. Which So I think that it's a great way just to learn about some cross-browser issues, just going to the site and reading about the rules. Yeah, definitely. And people can make their own custom rules too, which is something not everybody realizes. But um, CSS Lint basically works on, on Nicholas Zakis's CSS parser, and it emits events like rule start, rule end, style mm. sheet start, style sheet end. Um, so it's actually, and I, I know it can sound complicated, but it's relatively simple to uh, create a rule that tests for something in particular. Um, so I had a client uh, that wanted us to do a rule um, that tested that the blue that was being used across their site was really their brand blue uh-huh. and not subtle color-picked variations on that. Right. Uh, what, the, what they found is that people would use the color picker to um, get the color for that blue, and they ended up with like, you know, a hundred different, almost their right. brand blue, but not quite. <laughs> right, right. So, so we made a check um, on check-in. So no one, no one can check into their repository without running that check. Um, wow. That basically <laughs> looks for um, colors, hex values that are are close to that blue, but not exactly it. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome! That's great. 
it saves a lot of time, right? Because then it bubbles yeah. up an error that says you should have used this blue there instead of that. And someone can go into their code, correct it straight away. Wow. And it never gets these these crazy variations into the, you know, into the actual production code. Right, right. That's awesome. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. well, we're coming up on the hour, so we're running uh, almost almost done here. It's been awesome talking to you. But I know, Christopher, you wanted to talk to Nicole a little bit about the keynote speech they gave recently called Don't Feed the Trolls. Right, yeah. Uh, it was, um, I think it was at the Fluent JavaScript Conference by, yeah. by O'Reilly, which they're awesome folks. We love them. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> publishers, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. We love you guys. Yeah, you're awesome, awesome. Um, yeah, so what was... Um, uh, what was the impetus behind uh, that keynote? Like, because it's, I, I you know, it's, it's a great uh, speech, but I just want to like find out like what brought you to to talk about that topic. Like, what 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 motivated you to uh, to deliver that type of topic? Um, well, it's something that's pretty, uh, I guess, close to my heart. Uh, to use a cliche, um, <laughs> and I'm fairly shy, pretty introverted, and uh, when I first started. Um, doing object-oriented CSS, I had no idea that anyone was going to pay any attention to it. And um, when they did, it was terrifying to me. You know, I wasn't used to having anybody look at my code that wasn't in my team. Um, I wasn't used to speaking publicly. I wasn't used to the uh, crazy amount of criticism that you get when you when you dare to speak up and, and, um, and talk about things. So um, part of it was motivated by me kind of learning how to be myself and be on the web at the same time and, and what that would mean for me, like what, you know, what I would share, what I would keep to myself, what, um, all that kind of thing. Um, and then I saw, I saw just a lot of witch hunts in the community recently and I, and I wasn't happy with it. And I felt like some of the techniques that I developed for dealing with uh, trollish behavior could help us have less wish, witch hunts basically. And so, by um, is there an example you want to talk about in terms of witch hunt, or is there? Um, well, I think there are definitely a bunch of um, sort of sexism witch, witch hunts uh, mm-hmm. in both directions. Is the thing, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, that would be, I guess, a, a reasonably good example. And I'm not. I don't want to bring up a specific example. Right, right, yeah. that, that would be totally feeding the trolls. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so uh, yeah, so I just backed my way into to feeding the troll. But um, uh, so yeah, so so the so what type of troll like like in, in your presentation, which is which is really great. Uh, what type of uh, trolls are are out there, and what type of ways? And, and, and in your presentation, you actually talk about uh, how to address them and like uh, I guess diffuse. Mm. Or uh, I guess patronize a troll, but um, <laughs> but uh, like, how, how would you like, like? Can you name a couple troll like behaviors, if you will, and how, and how to best to uh, to deal with them? Yeah, well, I mean, the first important thing is to break trolls down into two categories. One are the trolls that are out there on the internet, and the other is the troll inside of yourself. Um, mm. And so those two trolls, I think, need to be dealt with really, really differently. Um, the first, the trolls out there on the internet, the thing is that they feed on attention and they feed on negative, positive, doesn't actually matter. Um, they, you know, it's typically people who uh, get a rush out of conflict. And um, if they get a rush out of conflict and you don't, then the longer you have that trolly interaction with them, the more exhausted you're going to become and the more energized they're going to become. Mm-hmm. And that just right. automatically means that you will lose over time. Yeah. Um, you might keep fighting, but you'll be miserable, you'll be stressed, you'll be unhappy, and they'll be excited and energized and ready to go for more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's the, you know, that's the big deal with exter- external trolls. And, and there are a bunch of different kinds. There's, you know, a uh, grammar Nazi troll. There's... Uh, <laughs> There, yeah, there's a, let's see, sexist troll or anti-sexist troll. Um, there are, um, you know, biased and, and um, there's also scary trolls that are actually, you know, doing, you know, horrible stuff to frighten people in mm-hmm. very real ways. And so right. it's sort of figuring out how to deal with all those kind of troll types. Yeah. I mean, I think one point you make, um, which is good, is that, you know, not everybody is a troll, even though you sometimes think that what they saying they're saying is troll behavior. Um, that you know perhaps they're just venting and um, they're not 
you know, that you can respond to them in a way uh, as a human instead of as a troll. Instead of blowing them off, you can uh, sort of hear what they're saying and try to respond to them in a way that's a little bit more human. I have this all the time with my books. I get, you know, these emails that are like, some of them are just crazy. Like, how did this ever get through copy editing? I can't believe <laughs> you wrote this. Blah. Oh, there's a semicolon when there should have been a period. And you're an idiot. And then... When I get something like that, I immediately write back and say, well, I'm sorry that, you know, you found this error and I um, will make sure that we fix it in the next printing. And sometimes, you know, in the rush to get a book out and there's so many pages, we miss some things. But thanks for pointing this out. And most of the time, you will get this really kind of humble email back. Oh, <laughs> like they never expected that someone was going to write back. Or and read it even necessarily write exactly, it. Or read it. <laughs> right, right, right. And so... They're like, oh, well, thank you for responding. And I'm glad that I can help make a correction in your next printing of your book. Bye. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of but thing. But they framed the semicolon and put it on their wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah I just... I, you have to keep in mind that, like, what, like, be compassionate. What does that person care about? What matters to them? And so what really matters to a grammar Nazi troll is grammar. They care so much about it. They care about it more than they care about content. They, they, it's, and you can argue that with them, right. but they will argue back because they, that is how they feel about the world. That the right. sort of presentation of words matters more than the, um, the content. Yeah. And so if you disagree about that fundamental thing, you if you argue that topic with them, you won't come to an agreement because your your core values are just too different. Right. Uh, right. But if you can just say, wow, that really matters to you. Thank you for pointing that out. Then, mm -hmm. yeah, they're like, wow, the person noticed what matters to me. Instead <laughs> yes. of, I need to fight for the, the importance of grammar in the world. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, so is the is the main way of dealing with a, a troll was just to, you know, like sort of Dave's example was like you know have a, almost like no like a a nice message back a, like a, a humbling but compassionate response that says like yeah thank you so much and we're gonna address the issue, uh, you know is that the best way or for all trolls or just. Uh, yeah, um, well, I think it depends on what the troll is and what they're saying. I mean, and there are many cases where I just won't respond at all. It's best to just ignore. Yeah. Um, like Nicole was saying, there's people who just feed off this negativity. So you can, you know, you can often sense when you're reading something if there's no content in it whatsoever, except for some kind of vitriolic diatribe. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just ignore it. You know, if it's a comment about something that I wrote or whatever, I will try to, you know, respond to them in a way that I recognizes what they're saying. Yeah, my bar is if there's anything if there's anything valuable in there, I try to respond to the valuable, but if they're just like blah, then there's there's sort of no point. Um yeah. but that said, um I don't think you can fake it. So if you're still pissed and you respond <laughs> even if you respond in a in a in a nice way, it will come through somehow, you know? So <laughs> I usually kind of, when I get one of those, I wait a day or two to reply yeah, right. uh, and kind of let it, let it calm down with, within myself. And if I feel like I can be compassionate and respond in a compassionate way to that person, I'll do it. Um, yeah. And if I can't, I can't. And that's okay, right? And yeah. it's okay, okay to ignore and just say, I don't, I don't want that to be part of my life or part of my blog comments or whatever else. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you don't want to write back, thanks for the quote-unquote advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've so written that, you know, that <laughs> time. And then I'm like, maybe I should take a little pause. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that about wraps it up. But, um, yeah. but we, do, we, do, we do ask a question of all our uh, guests is that uh, what are, um, what are you most excited about uh, right now and what are you most passionate about working on um, in the web world or anything outside the web world uh, that uh, like, have we picked up a carpentry again? Or I'm not sure. So uh, <laughs> let's just keep it to the web world. <laughs> okay, let's keep the web world. I am actually going to do some electrical stuff soon. Hopefully, I don't burn my house uh -oh. down. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, I actually lately it's um, maybe going to surprise people, but I'm getting excited about learning JavaScript. So that's my that's my fun, uh, exciting uh, 
thing that I'm that I've been up to lately, and I'm sort of delighted with my very minor successes so far. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with that, and I've also been um, playing with Sass and Compass, which um, I'm enjoying that a lot too. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, can I ask you a question? Like, um, so many people I've known have like trying to learn JavaScript, and um, you know they get the basics down, but to punch through and actually be comfortable to solve a problem with JavaScript. Like, like how are you, like, it's sort of like CSS, I guess, in a way. Just, you know, I, I think it takes, it's pretty easy to get started with CSS, but it just takes a lifetime to master, if you will. If you, but um, like, and how are, like, what steps are you taking to, to learn JavaScript, if, uh, if I might, might ask that? Um, well, I would say that I haven't reached that point yet, so okay. uh, I'll let you know if I get there. But, <laughs> but um, I am starting to, like, Feel like I'm understanding things a little better, like you know, higher order functions. I just finally understood that, and I was like, "Wow, I can't believe I got my brain around that." Um, <laughs> so I've been reading a book called Eloquent, Eloquent JavaScript. Oh yeah, um, and yeah, I really like that one. Um, it sort of um, uses computer science concepts and explains them in JavaScript. So you're you're not only just learning the language JavaScript, you're also just learning about being a good programmer in general. Um, so that one's been fun. And I think also just connecting up with the community, the JavaScript community is amazingly giving. And, um, I've found that like, if you ask a question about some JavaScript thing, like people are going to be like, I can tell you that, you know? (laughs) So so it's really, it's really nice. I I think, um, going to meetups and going to JavaScript events has helped a bunch. Awesome. Yeah. And they're an adjacent community. We should know them better, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you, Nicole, about all sorts of topics. Um, where can uh, people, you know, find out about you, follow you, that kind of stuff? Um, I'm Stubbornella on Twitter, and stubbornella.org is my domain name. So, uh, yeah, I write articles on there and, and tweet a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm gonna, I have upcoming speaking things. I'm, I'm going to be speaking at the CSS Summit um, soonish. I'm terrible with time, but I think it's in the next couple weeks <laughs> he'll tell you <laughs> I'll tell you off air I'll tell you when it's coming <laughs> um, yeah and then going to be speaking at um, at Velocity in China and at um, at Smashing Conf in uh-huh. Germany so those are nice. those are some cool. fun ones you know? yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. alright well thank you so much for being on the show it was a real pleasure and uh, we wish you the best of luck especially with the electrical work yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. Bye bye. Our thanks to Nicole Sullivan for joining us on Non Breaking Space. You can check out the show notes for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv, where we'll have all the links discussed in this episode. We're also on Twitter at NBSPTV and on Facebook at the same address. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Non-Breaking Space to hear Jason Grigsby say, In the same way in which you can't really claim that you've cleaned your house when you do that, you can't really claim that you've done something to optimize the experience for mobile when you do that. <laughs>